and I encourage you to take out your Bible and turn over to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, as we continue our study in this book of beginnings, talk about the creation of man and woman today. Genesis chapter 2. Thank you, Chuck. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen. And we're going to begin with verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And may God at his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. So we're in the book of Genesis. It's the book of beginnings. And I would have never thought 30 years ago, 35 years ago, when I first got into ministry, how these verses and the verses we studied would be so profound, would be so antithetical to many people's beliefs in our society. But these are the things that God originally set apart. For us to understand as he designed the world, designed man and woman and marriage and all these things. I don't know about you, but I have a fascination to see how things are made. I've been to the harvester works and watched how they begin with a piece of metal and it becomes a combine after a few, uh, a day or two, but you take the tour, it's several hours. I've been to the Hershey Chocolate Factory before it was an amusement park. And you actually got to go through the actual factory and they give you a Hershey bar at the end and you see how they make a Hershey bar. For a couple of years, when we were planning a church in Atlanta, a group of us from Liberty, uh, I worked at Lear Camper Tops. You still see Lear Camper Tops on the back of pickup trucks. And I worked at a factory, and I was one of the salespeople outside. But we got to see how they took fiberglass or metal, and from the beginning to end, through an assembly line, how to build those things and how they were originally designed. And today, we're looking how God originally designed uh, the world and us, so that we understand what we should be doing. We just recently purchased a new car, and one of the things I do is I read the owner's manual to make sure I do things properly. You know, I'm not going to put sand in the gas tank, for example, and expect it to run, right? And so it's interesting in our world around us how we take what God designed and we try to modify it or change it and expect it to do something other than it was meant to be. I don't know about you, but when we wake up every day and we go out into the world, we see what God created five to 10,000 years ago, and it's still sustaining itself. To look at the plants and the trees and human beings as the population continues to grow. 
Today we're going to talk about mankind's work, mankind's need for companionship, relationship, and the establishment of the institution of marriage and family. There is so much that could be said about all three of these subjects. We could preach a sermon on each one, and so we're going to just summarize today. But as we watch our culture unravel before us, and I'm, I see the culture running, and I mean running, as fast away from the foundation of, of our country, but also the Judeo-Christian ethics upon which it was founded upon. What are we going to do? What are we going to do about that as Christians? And we could have hours of examples. And you know, if you watch the news outlets on social media, you know what I'm talking about. It appears COVID-19 is going to be here into the fall and the winter. We're still dealing with the tension among people groups in this country and civil unrest. We see the challenges to our way of Western civilization. And Western civilization, many of the things that we do and we take for granted are rooted in the Word of God. Here are a few stories that I came across this week. An Atlanta church, African-American church, splits with the Southern Baptist Convention because they felt like they were downplaying racial issues. David Brooks wrote a couple months ago, and I came across this article, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. And he has a 14-page article about that. And here's the one that blew me away. Recently, the city council of Somerville, Massachusetts, legalized, legally recognized polyamory. Groups of three or more people can now register with the city to seek the same rights as married couples. And it's up for challenge. They expect challenge from the courts. I've never seen a time where our culture and the church has had so many attacks and chaotic issues to deal with all at one time. So today, our purpose is for each one of us to hold to the purpose God has for man in order to glorify him and to enjoy him, even if we face persecution. This message is so important as we look at how God designed the planet and civilization. God established marriage and the family to be the foundational building blocks for any successful society that maintains order and civility. It's the only sure thing that brings about the next generation that they will be godly and responsible citizens in our world. So let's review where we were last week as it leads us into the message for today. And I encourage you, if you have notes, to take notes. And you see there the review, the results of God's creation. In chapter 2, verse 4, uh, begins a switch away from the creation story to a narrative. And he says, as a result of creation, these things begin to occur. And then he talks about the creation of the first man in Genesis 2, verses 7 and 8, how God formed him from the dust of the ground. Then we talked about the creation of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. But today we see the purpose, the purpose of man in God's creation. What, what role, what purpose does man have for being here on earth? And he clearly defines it here in these verses as we finish out chapter 2. Well, I hope you have a sense of God's purpose and calling in your life. If you're a young person and you're about to go back to school, one of your purposes is to do well in school, to do well academically, to be light for Christ in the classroom. If you're working, if you have a job, your vocation, that's your place of glorifying God and being salt and light to those coworkers around you, looking for those opportunities to share the good news of Christ. And maybe you're retired Maybe you're a volunteer somewhere. Maybe all you do is chase around the grandkids. You know, if you do that, your purpose is 
to glorify God through being a wise counselor to your kids and pouring eternal values into your grandkids. We all have a purpose. God has a plan for us. We all have a place in this world because we're bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says, Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So remember this week that wherever you go and whatever you do, you carry around with you, if you're a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit. He is always present with you no matter what you do or where you go. So let's turn our attention to the text today as we think about the purpose of man. In Genesis chapter 2, in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The first thing we see is the stewardship of the Garden of Eden. The stewardship. Stewardship means management, overseer. It says the Lord took the man and put him. And last week I shared with you how I learned so much, even just from that phrase. When he says that God put him, he put him in a place of perfect paradise where all man's desires and provisions would be taken care of. But then we also talked about how when he put him, he put him there to rest in salvation with his relationship with his maker. What an awesome thing as we think about how God took the man and put him in this perfect position in the Garden of Eden. He created a place for man to live in that garden, and we realize that that word Eden means delight or garden of delight. He also placed him there after breathing his soul into him so that God could have a relationship with him and he could have one with God himself as well. How cool is all that? What a deal that God put man in this perfect environment. He was even given dominion over the garden, but also responsibility for the care and the upkeep of the garden. And what do we mean that man had dominion over the animals? Well, out where I live, we have raccoons, we have possums, we have rabbits, we have foxes, we have deer. And you know what? When they see me, they run. They run. They don't come and try to, unless they have rabies or something, normally an animal will run away. It's because man has dominion over those animals. Well, two things God asked Adam to do here from this place of spiritual rest God asked man to work the garden. That means to serve God by working in the garden, by worshiping him. Work as worship. Also to keep it. He says that means to take care of it or to be a steward or manager over it. Pretty soon, Adam is going to be asked with Eve to multiply and to have uh, kids. And he would be the overseer of them as the manager to make sure that the garden was well taken care of or After sin occurred, they would be out in the world. They would be dealing with the world around them. And it would be much bigger than Adam could do himself. And so he would be a manager to oversee it, but he would be responsible. Well, that word work for us today in our culture comes from the Protestant work ethic. Most people talk about the work ethic and leave out the Protestant part. But it was really found its roots in the Reformation with Martin Luther. The Encyclopedia Britannica describes the Protestant work ethic as this. In sociological theory, the value attached to hard work, thrift, and efficiency in one's worldly calling, which especially in the Calvinist view were deemed signs of an individual's election or eternal salvation. 
It means we're not saved by works, but that after we are saved, we do good works, as it says in Ephesians 2.10, that God prepared good works for us to do in advance for those who are called by his name. James says, faith without works is dead, and our works are to be done to glorify the Father. Another writer said this, Protestants, beginning with Martin Luther, reconceptualized worldly work as a duty which benefits both the individual and society as a whole. Thus, the Catholic idea of good works was transformed into an obligation to consistently work diligently as a sign of grace. Because God has transformed your life, you want to serve God and worship him through work. That's the Protestant work ethic. God gave man a purpose and a work to do for the glory of God and to benefit the men and women of this world. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul said, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. In the garden, we see God's first mention of command in the Bible. First mention of command. Look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So we see here a positive command. He focuses on the good things. In verse 16, God wants Adam and soon Eve to eat of any and all trees in the garden, especially the tree of life, which will sustain them into eternity. This is a reminder to us that God's commands are not burdensome, but are meant for good. That he puts guardrails along the road of life to help us to avoid going off the road and getting into the consequences of sin and the suffering from the heartache and the guilt and the shame. In 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They should be joyful to us because we're following how we were originally made or designed to be. Well, God promises if we will obey him, we will have life, we'll have joy, and we'll have blessing. Doesn't mean that life itself will be easy, but we will know that we will come out on the other side. Look at verse 17 of Genesis 2. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The first negative command is meant to warn Adam and Eve against physical and spiritual death. Against physical and spiritual death. Separation from God. If you think about it, have you ever bitten into an apple and inside you found a worm? I've done that a number of times. And you think, how does the worm get inside of there? Well, it isn't that the worm eats his way from the outside in. It's that an insect lays a little egg of the worm inside the apple blossom. And as the apple continues to grow and ripen, the worm, the egg hatches and the worm tries to eat its way out. And isn't that true of how sin works in our life? It begins on the inside, and then it comes out in our thoughts, in our words, and our actions. And so we see that God is warning Adam and Eve against allowing sin to come into their lives. So what was the danger of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? First of all, obviously, God forbid it, and to eat it would be to disobey But as we said last week, the fruit from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil provided humans the ability to make moral distinctions and a sense of ethical awareness. They would lose their perfection and their innocence, and they would understand what a guilty conscience is all about. 
they would understand what right from wrong is because they would be involved in sin. Man was created to work the garden, to keep it, to serve God through working in the garden was to worship. To keep the garden was to be in obedience to what God intended for man to be. And are we worshiping God through the work that he has given to us? Now we're going to take a break in the middle of the sermon and we're going to watch a pretty corny, funny video, but it's a great video. It's something that'll stick in your mind and you might even see some of the things you do up on that screen. It's a Stephen Curtis Chapman music video from a song he did a while back called Everything You Do. So let's play that now. Let's watch it. way to remind ourselves that everything we do, we should be doing it for the glory of God. I thought it was a good way to illustrate that. So are you obeying God's word as we, like Adam, rest in our position in Christ because we're saved, because we're born again, because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And we'll see in chapter 3, as we all know, how the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will come to play out with Adam and Eve and bring about the first sin. But the second point we want to illustrate here is the provision of a helpmeet for man. The provision of a helpmeet for man. Look at verse 18 of Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. This is the first time we hear God say that something in his world is not good. It was not good for man to be alone. Think about it. Adam had the sky. He had the sun by day. He had the moon by night. He had the vegetation around him. And then God created the animals even before Adam was created. But he didn't have anyone to really communicate or commune with on his level. He probably had a sense of loneliness. And God sensed that, so he created the animals and allowed Adam to begin the process of, of naming them. In verses 19 through 20, we see three types of animals. The livestock, that'd be your cattle, your sheep, and other things like that. The birds of the sky, Every beast of the field in verse 20. Adam must have had an incredible IQ. Could you imagine having 100% full use of your brain? I think they estimate we have, what, 10 to 12 to 15% of the full function of our brain. But Adam, because he was living in perfection, had full use. And so what a tremendous IQ he must have had. The Hebrew word for name may mean designations or general categories. He set up the general categories of the animal kingdom. I think about that human brain. It's been rightly called the greatest arrangement of matter in the universe. That's no overstatement. Here's six primary reasons. First of all, the brain is mind-boggling efficient. For all the work it does, it only needs to be fueled by the equivalent energy of a 20-watt light bulb. Scientists have recently calculated that the brain's main processing units Neurons add up to at least 86 billion. 
Neurons help us control our bodies and think thoughts. Thirdly, the human brain contains 528,000 miles of nerve fibers, over half a million miles of nerve fibers. They transmit information to different neurons, muscles, and glands. Scientists estimate that the brain contains 2.5 petabytes of memory capacity. This is equivalent to all the information stored at all U.S. academic research libraries. The brain is not snoozing while we sleep. Once consciousness is lost, it gets to work on all manner of chores, clearing out toxic molecules, regulating hormone levels, and also filing away experiences for later use, later recall. And finally, the brain produces the miracle we call consciousness, which to this day puzzles and dazzles the mind of scientists. They have no idea, no explanation how we know that we exist, that we're conscious and aware of that. The primary purpose of Adam naming those animals was probably to show Adam how much he wanted and needed companionship on a human level. A dog, a cat was nice, but it wasn't the same as communing with someone like himself. And so we see that God provided, and when he provides for us, we should give God thanks because he takes care of us in the little things of life and the big things of life, knowing our need and knowing how to tailor it to our personality. So God created a woman from man to assist the man in accomplishing the work that God wanted for him. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Notice that Adam felt he needed a helper. What does that word helper mean? Well, he needed another human being for companionship who was similar to him. While animals uh, functioned and had a lot of things going for them, they didn't have the same abilities or capacity for companionship that another human being would have. So God created a woman from man to assist a man accomplishing the work God wanted man to do, to worship, to obey, to please, to glorify God in all that he did. And the woman was created to complement him, to fill in the gaps. Notice we see in verse 20, fit. Fit. In some translations, you may have it means suitable. In Genesis 2.18, the word fit or suitable means like looking at his image in a mirror. Face to face with someone just like him. A woman that God would create to be of equal worth or value. A woman would fill in the gaps that fulfills a man's needs, a human's need. Explaining the role of men and women is a sermon for another time, and I've given you a few verses there for you to look at in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2. But in verse 21, we see that God calls the deep sleep to come over Adam so he could continue his creative work. Again, God <clears throat> made woman to be a suitable helper for Adam. But Adam didn't get to watch God's creative act. He was asleep during this time. I know we're in church, and I know that this is a family-oriented thing, but I'll bet when Adam woke up and saw that beautiful, innocent, naked woman, he probably couldn't contain himself. And we'll just leave it at that, okay? And you can read the Song of Solomon's when you get home, okay? But anyway, 
Can you imagine when he opened his eyes, he saw someone that was different yet like him as a human being. Now, why did God make Eve from Adam's rib? Well, God was emphasizing the worth of a woman, that she was equal and made of the same stuff, the same essence as Adam. God formed Adam out of the ground. And after taking the rib from Adam and closing up his skin, God says he made or he fashioned or he built or he formed something of complex construction, a woman. You've probably heard this before, but Matthew Henry said this, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I think it's a great balance of what God was doing here in creating Eve. Well, in Genesis 2.22, it's interesting. It says that God brought the woman to man. Like the father of a bride bringing his daughter to the man she will marry, so God brought Eve to Adam. And we see that tradition in Genesis 29.23. But in the evening, he, Laban, took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. God was preparing for that first marriage, the establishment of the family. We see in verse 23 of Genesis 2, we hear for the first time in Scripture the words spoken by a human being. Adam says this in verse 23, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Notice, called woman. Adam was expressing here woman's equality with man, but also her feminine distinction in gender. She would be a different gender than man. Eve, Eve was equal in essence, but distinct from man. In 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The weaker vessel here in the Greek means weaker physically, delicate, not talking about being inferior to man. We need to pause here and remind ourselves once again how clear and distinct the scripture is about the fact that there are only two biological genders that God has created, male and female. Now, I know that Facebook says that there are 58 gender choices that you can have. The United Kingdom Facebook page says 71, so I don't know why there's a variance between those two countries. In genderspectrum.org, they say this, this idea that there are only two genders and that each individual must be either one or the other is called the gender binary. However, throughout human history, we know that many societies have seen and continue to see gender as a spectrum and not limited to just two possibilities. Folks, God created male and female. And beyond gender dysphoria and gender confusion, there's also sexual choices as well. And again, that's a sermon for another time, but to suffice it to say, that God created male and female for important purposes. So let's look lastly at how God established one of the three institutions in the Bible. He established marriage and the family. He established government, and he established the church. Here in Genesis, we see right here in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, as we finish out the chapter, the establishment of the institution of marriage and family the establishment of the institution of marriage and family. 
Verse 24, I bet many of you at your weddings had these verses or the pastor recites something to this effect. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Notice in these two verses, three actions in marriage. To leave, loyalty to the spouse. Notice it says the man is to leave his parents. Some commentators believe it's harder for the man to leave his parents and be with the spouse than it is for the wife to leave her parents and to be with the spouse. Second of all, we see cleave or hold fast to an intentional, unbreakable commitment with the best interests of the other partner in marriage as the motive. An intentional, unbreakable commitment with the best interest of the other partner in marriage as the motive. That's what it means when we say, till death do us part at a marriage ceremony. And sad to say, many people will pledge that, but the divorce rate is roughly about 50%. And of course, we're seeing a downtick in marriages as people choose to live together. But God says, I want you to leave. I want you to cleave. And then thirdly, become one flesh, the sexual union. The consummation of the marriage and the two becoming one flesh. The uniting of souls. The looking at life outward as a team with the same goals and the same direction together. This is a picture of the unity and our commitment as Christ followers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Marriage is a picture of what of us being married to him through salvation and living purely for him through the rest of our lives. We see in verse 25 that the man and woman were not ashamed to be naked because God, in creating a perfect environment for man and woman, left them in a state of lovely innocence. Paradise to Prison author John J. Davis says this, Adam and Eve were the capstone of God's creative activity. Remember, as we've been saying, that the center And the focus of all of his creation was man, and now man and woman. So what is the purpose of marriage from God's perspective? I wish we had a lot of time to talk about that, but here's some perspective on what marriage, what God intends for it to be. First of all, intimacy spiritually. That's the most important thing, that Christ is at the center of the marriage relationship, that Everything we do, the more that we fall in love as a husband and wife with Jesus Christ, the more we fall in love with one another. The focus is upon him and seeking first his kingdom. Second of all is intimacy and companionship. I hope that your husband and your wife is your soulmate, your best friend, because that's what God intended in the marriage relationship for your relationship to be to love one another, to enjoy being together in each other's company, to enjoy talking with one another. And then thirdly, intimacy physically, as we just said, to consummate, to elevate, to show a commitment of cleaving. You know, that word cleave there in the Greek means like a superglue, bonding, something that can't be taken apart. And then intimacy with the purpose of procreation, to have children, For most couples, an intimacy in being a team, as I said, how they view the world, understanding their roles and the goals together as a couple, becoming one and going out into the world and being a representative of Christ. The application today is this, that God gave to man purpose with provision to carry out his work. The one thing I love about God is he doesn't ask us to do something that he won't empower us or provide the ability to do. 
1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, Faithful is he who called you, the same who will also do it. That if he puts you in a situation, he's going to give you the resources, the power through the Holy Spirit, and whatever else you need that he sees necessary to carry out what he wants you to do, he's going to give it to you. And so God gave to man purpose with provision to carry out his work. God took care of man's needs by fully providing the perfect environment with animals subjected to mankind and God providing the perfect companion by creating a woman. Our key thought is this. God is the one who defines mankind's race, mankind's purpose, and mankind's need for a family unit. Race, purpose, family unit. That's how God designed it. Designed the building blocks of society, of civilization. That if we get that part right, then everything comes out of that to the honor and the glory of God. But sadly to say, we live in a culture that's trying to redefine marriage. And now that the you know, same-sex marriage has become the law of the land, it opens the doors, as we said, for all kinds of other ways that we can define marriage. But may we come back to what God said and what God intended. And as we think about these questions to ponder this week, first of all, are we being wise stewards of all that God has entrusted us with? Are we doing everything to the glory of God? Are we thinking about our purchases? Are we thinking about the entertainment or hobbies that we do? And, you know, we can go out and fish to the glory of God even if we have a bad day fishing, right? We can enjoy the beautiful sun, uh, sun and, and the scenery around us. Are we glorifying God? Are we being wise stewards of all that God has entrusted us with? Second of all, are we thankful for the spouse, the family, or the friends God has given us for companionship? Aren't you thankful that you have a companion? That God didn't place you here and just leave you alone to just yourselves? Yeah, it's great we have a relationship with God, but he also added that companionship, that human being to be with us. And thirdly, how can we exalt and educate people about God's perfect design for marriage? Over and over, it's amazing to me how many millions and billions of dollars our government and other countries will spend to do research. And they always come back to the same thing. The kids do better in an environment of a dedicated husband and wife. That's because you can't beat the original design that God intended. So may we go out and share that news about God's design for marriage. And may, they, may people be open to understand what that is instead of what the world says that marriage is all about. As we bow our heads and our hearts here, I just encourage you to focus on that one thing, the first thing we talked about. Are you doing all things to the glory of God? Are you being a wise steward of all the things of your life? Let's bow our heads and our hearts. And I encourage you for a moment to think about that. You know, we don't own anything. Everything we have has been given to us by God. He owns it all. And we're just merely stewards passing through in this life. We hold our possessions loosely. And are we using them? Are we using our possessions? Are we using our talents and abilities? Are we using our treasure to glorify God? That's the question before us today as we learn from Adam and God's intention for him in the garden. Just pause and ask yourself that question. And if you need a moment 
to confess any area that you need to just give over to God and say, Lord, I need to change my perspective and my motive to make sure I'm doing it to the glory of God or I need not do it. Father, the great thing about opening your word is that as it goes forth, it touches each individual heart in unique and different ways. Lord, the good news is that you can see everyone's heart that are, that's in this room. And Lord, if there's areas that need to be surrendered to you or motives that need to be changed or focus or intentionality, I pray we do that, to just be reminded of that little song that we heard a little while ago, that everything we do, we need to do it for your honor and for your glory. Ultimately, that's what pleases you the most. Our obedience, our work is worship, that, Lord, we just point people to you, that we are signposts along the way so that people might see Jesus through us and look to you. So, Lord, we just pray that as we sing this last song that you'd help us to surrender to see you as being our all in all. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.